As the Civil War begins, what is the Army's strategy to win the war? How does the Union Army perform in early battles, including Bull Run and Shiloh? What happened at the Battle of Antietam that gave President Lincoln the opportunity to issue the Emancipation Proclamation? For answers to these questions and more Civil War insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, focusing on the Civil War years of 1861 and 1862, I'm speaking with Dr. Peter G. Knight, Director of Field and International History Programs at the Center of Military History. Welcome, Dr. Knight, and thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure to be here, Lee. Thank you. So I want to give folks a little background about who you are. So Dr. Peter Knight joined the Center of Military History after retiring from the U.S. Army as a lieutenant colonel after 23 years of service in the military intelligence branch. He served in numerous tactical and strategic level intelligence assignments, including a combat tour in Iraq as an intelligence advisor to the 2nd Iraqi Army in Mosul and culminating as the deputy commander of the 706th Military Intelligence Group at Fort Gordon, Georgia. Over the course of his military career, Dr. Knight also served in two academic postings. His first was as an instructor and later assistant professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point from 2004 to 2007. And the second was as the Army Reserve Officer Training Corps, or ROTC, professor of military science at Princeton University from 2011 to 2014. Dr. Knight is a 1994 graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and he later earned his Ph.D. in history from The Ohio State University in June of 2006. His area of historical specialization is strategic intelligence in the Korean War. He wrote his doctoral thesis on the subject and published a chapter on intelligence in the Ashgate Research Companion to the Korean War. I hope I pronounced that right. Okay. Dr. Knight is also the author of the revised CMH publication, The Staff Ride, Fundamentals, Experiences, and Techniques, which published in 2020. And he has led numerous battlefield staff rides for the U.S. Army across the globe. So, Dr. Knight, uh, what am I missing here? And t um, tell us a little bit more about what the staff rides are. Sure. Uh, so, the staff ride concept is really an exercise in, in critical thinking and analysis. It, it pairs exploration of a battlefield uh, and the terrain associated with that battle in addition to doing a sort of a, a preliminary study of the battle, reading some good campaign histories, pamphlets to educate oneself on the battle and the key decisions that were made, and then going to the field study, actually walking the ground to visualize what happened, and then to conduct an, an analysis, an analysis uh, that lets people exercise critical thinking skills, evaluating how and why decisions were made, mm -hmm. under what conditions, and what might they do were, were they placed in a similar situation. It gets them thinking about and asking the right questions mm -hmm that'll help them problem solve the, the challenges that they encounter today. Uh, and so in my background uh, on the West Point and Princeton faculties, and in my five years here at the Center of Military History, I've had the, the great privilege uh, to conduct staff rides on numerous Civil War battlefields, mm -hmm. many of which we'll talk about today. Oh, great. And some overseas ones as well, I believe. Absolutely. Yeah. Battle of the Bulge, Normandy. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's been a great privilege. Oh, that's awesome. And what, what a valuable tool the staff ride really is. So it's it's more than a battlefield tour. and it, it, it really is a great training opportunity for soldiers of all ages, but really helps to inform current decision making. Absolutely. Great. Well, good. Well, so let's let's dive into it. Well, first of all, was there anything else about your background that I missed that you want to highlight? No, I think I think we covered it. We covered it there, yeah. right? Okay, perfect. So let's jump back into it. Um, when uh, the uh, episode one, we finished by talking about 
the attack on Fort Sumter. So the Civil War has begun. Um, we know that General Winfield Scott is the overall Union commander and that he had a plan called Anaconda. So can you just pick up there? What was Anaconda about? And and then talk to me about who was in charge of the Confederacy. Ab- absolutely. So we know that after Fort Sumter, President Lincoln calls up 75,000 militiamen into national service for 90 days to put down an insurrection that he termed as too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary cause of judicial proceedings and in order to maintain the honor, integrity, and existence of our national union. This response was immediate and nearly overwhelming as political leaders in the various states raised even more regiments than they were asked to uh, by President Lincoln. Each side believed that the war would be a short-lived event, and each side grossly underestimated the resolve of the other. One lone voice of experience in the wilderness was Winfield Scott, the aging general-in-chief of the Union Army, 75 years old, a veteran of the War of 1812, who (laughs) fought and forcibly evacuated the Cherokee along the Trail of Tears and led a masterful expedition to capture Mexico City and secure victory in the Mexican War. Scott had grown so old and obese that he couldn't even mount a horse, and his appearance and advanced age left him and his views open to criticism and doubt. Clearly not fit for field duty, he focused his sharp military mind on a strategic concept called the Anaconda Plan, which entailed using the American Navy to blockade the Confederate coastline while an army of 80,000-plus men would move down the Mississippi River Valley and and, uh, capture that, conquer it, splitting the Confederacy in two, and over time systematically strangling the Confederacy and its military forces into submission. This would take time, much more time and men and more naval vessels than people in the North were willing to countenance at the time. And so Northern and Southern political leaders who had no real context of war, aside Mm -hmm. from the Indian fighting and the War of 1812 that was then almost 50 years in the past, and they felt that one smashing battlefield victory would be all it would take to make the other side give up. And so each side began massing their armies, and the Union aimed to take control of the Confederate capital that had recently relocated to Richmond, Virginia. And while the Confederates planned to defend their territory against such an incursion, Irvin McDowell, a 43-year-old U.S. Army major, a supply officer from Ohio, whom had never commanded troops in the field, yet was heavily favored for his planning abilities by Treasury Secretary Selman P. Chase, also of Ohio, uh, would lead a very green army, the Army of Northeastern Virginia, into the Battle of First Bull Run or First Manassas. Mm -hmm. He was pressured to act before he and his army were anywhere near ready. Oh, wow. And McDowell's battle plan was complex for a novice army, and yet it almost succeeded except for his own hesitation and the timely arrival of Confederate reinforcements that allowed the battle to degenerate into a rout of the Union forces back to the defenses of Washington, D.C. It was a great embarrassment for the U.S. Army and the Lincoln administration. Yeah, I I can imagine. And uh, you say he was was forced to act sooner than he wanted to. Uh, Why and by who? So great pressure on the Lincoln administration, and and the northern populace is calling – on to Richmond, right, to, mm-hmm. to, to capture the Confederate capital, thinking that one battle would get it done and get it over quickly. And these 75,000 volunteers mm-hmm. that are brand new are only in the game for 90 days. Wow. Imagine having to train people who've never held a weapon before to get them ready to go in that short amount of time and execute the campaign itself in that very short time frame. We're talking about the Battle of Bull Run, which took place, it was what, late July Yes. Of 1861. That's right. And very close to Washington, D.C. Yes. Now, I I understand that people thought this was going to be a quick battle. And it was interesting because people went out to the battlefield to watch. They had like sidelines. Members of Congress would have would take picnic baskets and their family members in carriage rides out to some high ground overlooking the battle area. This Mm -hmm. was this was an entertainment spectacle to them, which is hard for us to fathom these days. Yeah. People didn't realize what they were getting into. But now let's talk about the Battle of Bull Run. And you also mentioned Manassas. So I know there's a difference in some of these battles have 
two different names. Why is that? That's correct. And so the Union often named the battles for the, the rivers, the bodies of water near which they took place, mm-hmm. hence the Battle of Bull Run, Bull Run Creek that runs through the battlefield. But of course, Manassas and Manassas Junction was the town in Virginia that the Confederates were defending. Mm-hmm. And they had the tendency to name the battle for the, the geographic location, the town, the area which they were defending. So how does the Army today refer to the battle? Do we use both we, in an official capacity? We, or? we, we often do use both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will tell you that the National Park Service has the basic convention of uh, going with the name of the side that won the battle. <laughs> okay. So we, we tend <laughs> so to follow Bull Run, suit. So Bull if you're – yeah. Bull, right. so, so Manassas if you're a, a, a Confederate uh, mm-hmm. of the Confederate persuasion. So uh, talk about that battle. How many days did that take and – what did the both sides look like? How many did we right, have in the so, Union? And, and, and what? talk to me a little bit about, I think it's interesting to know, what type of weapons were being used. Absolutely. So the battle takes place July 18 through 21, 1861. And uh, at the onset of the, of the campaign, the Union forces numbered about 35,000 under McDowell. And remember, many of those are 90-day volunteers who had never been in the Army. Tactics were linear, volley-centric, volley-fire-centric for the purposes of massing fires and for command and control purposes. On a smoke-obscured battlefield, when firing happens and the noise begins, you have to have linear tactics to be able to keep your unit together and control it and to be able to see from one side of the unit to the other. That's easily lost amidst the chaos of battle. Uh, And, of course, there were great advances in weaponry at the time. We had the advent of the rifled musket and the rifled artillery pieces that greatly extended the lethal range of the battlefield. Instead of killing a man at 100 yards with a smoothbore musket, you can now kill a man at 300 yards with a rifled musket. And artillery pieces, which were also direct fire weapon systems at the time, instead of reaching out and being able to kill people at less than a mile, the rifled artillery extends that range to over a mile. And did both sides have the rifle? Both sides had it, but certainly the Union side had more of the rifles than the Confederates, especially at the outset. Uh, But I would tell you that the advantage accrues to the tactical defender with that technology behind a covered and concealed position. Mm -hmm. And so that was a hard lesson learned in the early fighting of the Civil War. And did we have repeating rifles yet, or is that still years away? Uh, repeating rifles, carbines, and breech-loading weapons were developed before the war, and they mm-hmm. will be utilized, but they're going to be utilized in much smaller quantities and in much more specialized uh, units like the cavalry that need a lighter weapon to carry with them on horseback as mm-hmm. they do their reconnaissance missions. Yeah. And, so and talking about cavalry, were there any cavalry in this battle? Uh, the cavalry in, in uh, Bull Run was not well utilized mm-hmm. it, it was it was kind of kept close uh and not used in the reconnaissance methods that mm-hmm. would be that would come to fruition later in the war yeah and, and i think that's a good lesson uh, learned from that battle is how to use the cavalry how, how how to improve your reconnaissance and i know that will play a huge role later on in the war so how you you mentioned that the union almost won this battle but they didn't so you know Right. And so the U.S. Army performed surprisingly well in a few parts of this battle and yet predictably horrible in in others. McDowell's plan was sound but very complex and predicated on a green army performing like seasoned veterans, which they certainly did not. Uh, Union divisions were stifled by straggling, indiscipline, poor maps of the area. Movements were delayed because of having to cut down trees and make roads wide enough to fit the artillery and the ammunition wagons. Tactically, the Union commanders made some great initial pushes. McDowell's initial plan was to try to strike the right flank of the Confederate line, but uh, Israel Richardson, one of his subordinate commanders, kind of got ahead of himself in engaging at Blackburn's Ford and compromised that plan. Mm. So McDowell went and decided to attack the other flank. Mm. But in order to do that, he had to make a path, and that involved cutting down trees, and and he was delayed in making that flanking movement. Mm. But even with those delays, he made the flanking movement in enough time and did well enough in the first engagement big engagement on Matthews Hill to push the Confederates off. Mm. And he was in a position to exploit that 
gain, but he hesitates at that point to rest and replenish and, and, and is probably surprised and shocked at his level of success to that point yeah. and, and didn't, didn't want to hedge his bets by going for too much too soon. But at the same time, his hesitation cost him dearly because Joseph Johnston's reinforcements from the Shenandoah Valley arrive at the Manassas battlefield just in time mm-hmm. to get their defenses set on Henry House Hill. And when McDowell renews the attack, finally, he makes the mistake of moving his rifled artillery, which had a good standoff advantage against the Confederates. He moves it too close to their positions and makes it vulnerable to Confederate counter-battery fire. Mm -hmm. And then the infantry attacks that are supposed to rely upon that artillery support now become piecemeal commitments of regiments Hmm. and those piecemeal attacks falter against the strength of the Confederate defense. Even seasoned veterans like William Sherman have a steep learning curve in this battle commanding large formations of troops for the first time and not realizing that that a piecemeal approach was not going to get it done. Yeah, and and this is where... uh, General Jackson, Confederate general, he really earns his his nickname. Can you talk about that? Because I think it's kind of significant. Yes, and so that moniker comes from uh, General Bernard B., who was trying to rally his units by pointing to Jackson as he established his firm defensive line atop Henry House Hill. And he said, look, there stand, there's Jackson standing like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginians, the Virginia wow. regiments mm-hmm. of, of Jackson's uh, command. And, and thus the name Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall and, Jackson. And that sticks. And to this day, we know him as Stonewall Jackson. That is right. Who is prior to the Civil War, what was he doing? He was a professor uh, of tactics and artillery at the Virginia Military Institute. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. and, and his cadets used to, call, used to call him old Tom Fool. He was very <laughs> methodical. He was a very mundane instructor, very, very uh, – mechanical and 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 straight laced and and almost robotic in the way he delivered his lesson plans mm-hmm. which bored his students uh and and gave him that nickname right so the battle um it's it's mcdowell has a chance to win he hesitates which hesitates to exploit his success something we're going to see many times by union generals in the in coming battles over the next several years yes um and uh, and gets pushed from the battlefield. It's true. And, and you know, that hesitation, especially for inexperienced commanders, is understandable mm-hmm. because these guys have never commanded these large troop formations ever in their careers. Most of these generals may have commanded platoons and companies in the Mexican War. And all of a sudden, they're thrust into commands of divisions, corps, and armies. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a very steep learning curve. So the Union Army starts racing back towards Washington, D.C. It's about, what, 20 miles away, I think. And what does the Confederate Army do? Do they pursue and exploit? The Confederate Army becomes as disorganized in victory as the Mm. Union does in loss. Mm. And they're not able, really, to continue the pursuit uh, to the point that they perhaps would have liked to. But they're also relishing the fact that they've been left in command of the field and earned the first victory in the first major battle of the war which they'll trumpet throughout the South. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a uh, what we would call today a great propaganda victory uh, for them, not just a battlefield victory. Um, so a- after that loss by the Union, um, what does the Union Army do? What's, the, what's their next step, and what happens to McDowell? Okay, so uh, McDowell is, is relieved of command, obviously. They're going to look for a, a new person to, to stand up a, a new army, and they're going to look to a man by the name of George Brinton McClellan, will have achieved some success in the mountains of what is today West Virginia, what was then Western Virginia, and his successful exploits there bring him to Lincoln's attention and and his reputation as a master administrator, a master organizer. He's a West Point graduate, uh, a distinguished graduate of the Military Academy. He'd been an observer of the Crimean War, understanding and learning about the utility of the use of railroads in armed conflict Mm -hmm. uh, from that observation. And of course, uh, McClellan himself had been in the railroad business prior to the Oh, really? Okay. Uh, So uh, he seemed like certainly a very logical and very talented choice, and he had the favor of Winfield Scott. McClellan was a protege of his. 
and so he, he, he was a logical fit there. But in terms of what's happening strategically, uh, we have to also look at what's happening out west as well as what's happening in the east. Because Part of the Anaconda Plan. Because, because all of this encompasses elements of the Anaconda Plan, just as you mentioned. In the Western theater, the strategic concept was more in line with Scott's Anaconda Plan. Scott had proposed that the federal armed forces squeeze the life out of the Confederacy by blocking the southern coastline and launching that amphibious thrust down the Mississippi River. While Scott argued that the plan would end the war with minimal casualties, he ignores the fact that it would take many more naval ships than the North had at the time. And while Lincoln believed the Anaconda Plan had merit, he knew that the Army would have to play a much more active role than even Scott had envisioned particularly in the border states of Kentucky and Missouri, both slaveholding states that had managed not to secede from the Union where, and, and where Unionist and secessionist forces were already vying for power. Lincoln was determined to not only keep Missouri and Kentucky in the Union, but also to rescue eastern Tennessee. And in July of 1861, following the Union defeat at Bull Run in Virginia, Lincoln sketched out a strategy for the Western theater that involved securing uh, Missouri and launching a two-pronged offensive from Cairo, Illinois to Memphis, Tennessee mm. and from Cincinnati, Ohio into eastern Tennessee. And, but on 4 August, Major General McClellan, the new commander of the Army of the Potomac, mm-hmm. presented his own plan for the West that largely accorded with Lincoln's wishes and proved more elaborate. And don't forget, McClellan's also going to uh, succeed General Scott as General-in-Chief okay. of the Union Army. Mm-hmm. So this is why he's offering a plan for the Western theater. He recommended one grand campaign involving two Western armies, Mm. one based in Kentucky, the other in Missouri. The first army would divide into two columns to capture Eastern Tennessee and Nashville, respectively. They They would then reunite at Chattanooga and proceed to Atlanta and then on to Montgomery, Alabama. Mm. The other army after gaining control of Missouri, would launch an amphibious expedition down the Mississippi River and seize New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And so the commanders that that uh, the Union would find to try to undertake these plans would be Major General Henry Halleck, also known as Old Brains. He was an old <laughs> academic instructor from West Point. He would command the Department of the Missouri. Mm-hmm. And then Major General Don Carlos Buell would command the Department of the Ohio. And then, of course, Halleck would have a talent subordinate in Ulysses S. Grant Mm. and also John Pope. Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, the Confederate strategy in the West was, per President Jefferson Davis's plan, a strategy of territorial defense, stationing forces at critical points along the perimeter of the Confederacy, in essence forming a defensive cordon across southern Kentucky, stretching eastward from Columbus on the Mississippi River to Bowling Green and from there to the Cumberland Gap on the border with Tennessee and Virginia. General Albert Sidney Johnston was the Confederate commanding general in the Western Theater. He was the most senior of all the Confederate mm-hmm. officers and a, and a huge uh, favorite of Jefferson Davis. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant was Henry Halleck's most aggressive subordinate. And on 7 November 1861, he tried to establish a forward base on the Mississippi River at Belmont, Missouri, just across the Mississippi from Columbus, Kentucky, but that failed. But Grant exemplified two traits in that campaign that would bring him success in all of his in, – in most of his subsequent campaigns, mm-hmm. clear thinking and coolness under fire. So in De- – Also, in December of 1861, General Benjamin Butler opens a southern front uh, that will eventually result in the capture of New Orleans, Louisiana. And by January of 1862, Grant proposes to Henry Halleck to bypass the Mississippi River altogether and launch an amphibious expedition up the Tennessee River to capture Fort Henry and use it as a deeper springboard into southern territory. He follows that victory at Fort Henry 10 days later with another victory at Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River. These two victories set the stage for entry into the South to seize the key railroad junction at Corinth, Mississippi. Grant's reputation soars. He earns the nickname Unconditional Surrender Grant (laughs) that nicely accords with his initials. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that movement toward 
toward Corinth, Mississippi, precipitates the Battle of Shiloh. All right. Well, so they're making a lot of more gains out west than they are in the east at the moment. Um, so so let's talk about Shiloh then. So um, what happened at Shiloh and uh, why is it significant? Absolutely. So the Battle of Shiloh happens on 6 and 7 April 1862. Union forces under Grant had advanced to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River as they gradually moved toward their objective of Corinth, Mississippi. And they had paused at Pittsburgh Landing to await the arrival of Union forces from Don Carlos Buell's Department in the Ohio. The idea would be that they would join forces for this campaign against Corinth. Meanwhile, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston, still smarting from Grant's victories at Henry and Donelson and Buell's recent capture of Nashville, Tennessee, instead of trying to defend a series of strong points, now decides to mass his Confederate troops at Corinth and move forward to preempt Grant as his troops begin to occupy Pittsburgh Landing. He's hoping to hit Grant before Buell's forces can arrive and join with him. Johnston intended for his army to attack the federal left flank anchored on the Tennessee River, drive it from its base of operations at the landing to the banks of Owl Creek a little further inland and then destroy it. Mm -hmm. This plan failed to account for the broken terrain over which that assault would occur. Mm -hmm. Grant and Sherman managed to absorb Johnston's attack using the broken terrain and tough defensive efforts to delay and disrupt the attack, buying enough time to establish a formidable line of heavy artillery, naval gunfire, and a final defensive line that could not be broken by nightfall. Well, uh, let me just ask you about that, th- that terrain. It's, uh, it's a great example of how terrain can play a significant role in the battle and understanding your terrain, getting a little bit of intelligence, right? Maybe having your recon guys out there. Did Johnston not know the difficulty of the terrain or he just plowed ahead in spite of it? Johnston did not have good maps of the area, mm. and they did. They, they very much plowed ahead uh, and not wanting to compromise uh, his, his plan or come into contact too early. He kind of kept his, his units back. He didn't mm. do a lot of on-the-ground reconnaissance. Oh, okay. uh, he was trying to keep the plan very simple and, and, and lockstep so that his troops could easily execute it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so— they could not break that that line by nightfall. And in the meantime, overnight on April the 6th, Buell and his troops arrive to Pittsburgh Landing. So on April 7th, it is Grant that strikes first and attacks and sends the Confederates reeling all the way back to Corinth. Wow. Right. So again, um, now another Grant victory and another victory in the West. Yes. So um, uh, and we're now a year into the war. So there have been some Union victories, but they've mainly been out west. Uh, meanwhile, what's been happening in the, uh, in, the in, in the east? And so as George Brenton McClellan creates this army, the Army of the Potomac, an army of over 100,000 men, this is indeed the largest army ever fielded on the North American continent up to that time. And he... He is a master administrator, a master trainer. He has these troops ready to go. They're marching. They're learning how to use their weapons. Yet he doesn't put that army into action. He doesn't do it fast enough for the liking of the Lincoln administration or for northern public opinion. And there's that great clamor once again on to Richmond with the idea that the capture of the Confederate capital will bring a swift end to the rebellion. And so – McClellan now knows he has to act, and he has to consider how he will attack Richmond. And as he looked at an overland approach to Richmond, he really kind of eschews the hard fighting that such an overland campaign would cause. He'd have to cross several rivers and go through a lot of of very uneven and, and tangled terrain that the, that the Confederate Army certainly knows better than he does. And so he's looking at alternatives. And he, what he decides to do is try to move his units by water to the tobacco port of Urbana mm-hmm. on the Rappahannock. In Virginia? In Virginia, and then move towards Richmond overland. However, Joseph Johnston preempts and, and negates that plan because he shifts his army back away 
from the Potomac River and creates a new line near the North Anna River guarding the overland approaches to Richmond. And McClellan's a little bit embarrassed by this change in plan because as his units go into Manassas and places where the Confederates had held up before, they're finding fake gun emplacements, Quaker guns. And, and, and That's good come, intelligence or, or counterintelligence. <laughs> counterintelligence. Yeah. They come to realize that the, their positions out that far forward were not as formidable <laughs> as perhaps they had wow. thought. Wow. So now McClellan has to go back to the drawing board again. And this time he comes up with the idea of moving his units by water to Fortress Monroe on the peninsula between the James and York rivers, and then pursuing a campaign up the Virginia Peninsula, taking advantage of the James and the York rivers to utilize naval assets to help support the ground attack and better supply the ground attack as they push forward towards Richmond. Hmm. It's kind of the opposite of the Revolutionary War. (laughs) (laughs) Although you you mentioned the Revolutionary War, and of course Yorktown figures prominently in this. The Confederates will set up two defensive lines on the Virginia Peninsula, the first one being at Yorktown mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and, and utilizing the Warwick River, which kind of runs uh, south to north across the peninsula and terminates at Yorktown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll make use of some of those Revolutionary War fortifications yeah. mm-hmm. and, and reshape them to their liking. But General John Magruder uh, will be the Confederate commander in the area, and he will set up defensive positions behind the Warwick River to uh, negate McClellan's advance. Mm -hmm. McClellan will will go and probe those areas, trying to ascertain where best to to try to penetrate those lines, but he's pretty much made up his mind that he's going to take Yorktown by siege and use the superiority of his artillery, Mm. all of this massive equipment that he's been able to put on boats and move down to the peninsula. And what time of year is this? This is April. April again of sixty two. Of eighteen sixty two. Okay. Exactly. They they arrive at Fort they start arriving at Fort Monroe on the first of April, and then they begin moving out from there. And they hit as they go at uh Magruder's defensive line, Magruder does a great job of deception in, mm-hmm. in making himself and his army look much, much bigger than they actually were. He would have troops moving back and forth, mm-hmm. dragging tree branches behind them, stirring up huge dust clouds mm-hmm. just to paint the picture to the observer on the other side mm-hmm. that there's a much larger force there than was actually the case. Wow. Joe Johnston, uh, meanwhile, as he gets wind of, of the movement of the Army of the Potomac, also moves down to the Virginia Peninsula and checks out Magruder's positions. And he realizes that these positions are not as well engineered or as tenable as he would have liked. Mm-hmm. And he want, and he, he actually remarked only McClellan could hesitate to have attacked this position on the wow. Warwick River line. Wow. Uh, but McClellan, being cautious mm-hmm. and, and being uh, subject to the experiences of the time, right, back then – Army commanders were their own operations and intelligence officers, and they mm-hmm. were reliant upon the information that they received. And And he had uh, folks like Thaddeus Lowe going up in hot air balloons, doing mm-hmm. aerial reconnaissance and trying to right. count heads and flags. Wow. And then he had the Pinkerton de- Detective Agency also trying mm-hmm. to figure out what they could through various uh, spy methods or, or uh, capturing prisoners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that had some uh, play in in the inflation of numbers that that and, and McClellan's own thought process, always believing that that he was outnumbered by the enemy. Hence his cautious approach. But he but it was actually the opposite. He outnumbered the enemy. Indeed, he just he didn't did. know that. He didn't and, realize and it. He was in constant friction with the Lincoln administration, always asking for more reinforcements. Mm-hmm. And yet the Lincoln administration had only agreed to his plan if he left enough troops to protect the Capitol, right. yeah. which was debatable in terms of Lincoln didn't think he had left enough. Mm-hmm. McClellan thought he did, but Lincoln didn't mm-hmm. agree with that. And then the activities of Stonewall Jackson mm-hmm. and the Shenandoah Valley at the same time created a perpetual threat to Washington. Right. So, so what was Stonewall Jackson doing and, and um, who, who was leading the forces against him? So uh, he, uh, Stonewall Jackson uh, would face off against Nathaniel Banks. Nathaniel Banks would move into the Shenandoah Valley from the Harper's Ferry end, moving, 
moving mm-hmm. uh, up the valley, if you will, because the Shenandoah River goes south to north. Mm-hmm. Um, and banks would earn a couple of early victories mm-hmm. and, then, and then kind of pull back. And, uh, and then they were so confident in what Banks had done, Banks was actually getting ready to dispense more troops to join McClellan. But it was at that time uh-huh. that Johnston and Robert E. Lee back in Richmond were advising Jackson to begin deliberate operations in the Valley for the specific purpose of tying down Union troops so that they didn't reinforce oh, okay. McClellan. Were, were they – now, by this time, was General Lee in command of the Army? No. Uh, right. This it, there's still quite a ways to go in the Peninsula Campaign. What what would happen is at the Battle of Fair Oaks uh, and the Battle of Seven Pines, which occurred just outside of Richmond, as McClellan's army gets closer, uh, Joe Johnston will receive a wound in the chest, hmm. and he'll be removed from the battlefield. At that point, uh, Jefferson Davis puts Robert E. Lee in command. And then Robert E. Lee embarks upon a series of battles known as the Seven Days Battles, Mm -hmm. which totally upends McClellan's advance towards Richmond. And uh, what's the timing on this? Because I know – well, first of all, when when does Lee take command? Okay, so so Lee assumes command uh, right after the Battle of of Seven Pines, and then the Seven Days Battles begin in early June of, uh, of 1862. And, and they go uh, for, for a period of seven days. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lee takes a much more aggressive attack against uh, McClellan uh, and, and first hits him at Mechanicsville, concentrating armies and the elements of the – against the Army of the Potomac that is north of the Chickahominy River, elements that to the south were kind of an economy of force mission. Mm-hmm. And so Lee's accepting some risk there because McClellan could, could call that bluff and push towards Richmond, but he, he decided not to uh, after the, the Battle of Fair Oaks and Seven Pines. And, and uh, in the meantime, Jackson is on the move from the Shenandoah Valley and McClellan gets wind that that movement is underway, and so he's constantly on guard for when and mm. where is Jackson going to show up. And he keeps most of his units north of the uh, of the Chickahominy River. Yeah, was was uh, was McClellan concerned about that movement north, and um, and so did he disengage from from Lee to protect Washington, or what was happening? No. So well, Irwin McDowell. The first corps commander mm-hmm. now demoted to the first corps commander right. um, was actually in the vicinity of Fredericksburg, mm-hmm. and he was the corps that McClellan was asking for to join him on the peninsula, and it was the corps that the Lincoln administration just could not let go because of developments in the Shenandoah Valley and wanting that extra insurance, that extra cushion at Fredericksburg between the Confederate forces and Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that became a great piece of, of consternation mm-hmm. between Lincoln and McClellan because at one point Lincoln promises to send McDowell and then he relinquishes – he reneges on that on that promise much to, to McClellan's great frustration. Oh, yeah. And, and, and we'll see this later in, in, in the war, this tension building between uh, McClellan and Lincoln. Um, but now um, we're – We've got the uh, the upcoming Battle of Antietam. So, yes. if you can set that up, how did how did the forces end up uh, meeting there? Okay, so after the failure of the Peninsula Campaign and the Seven Days Battles, after McClellan's failed attempt to take Richmond, uh, Lincoln turns to a new commander. He turns to General John Pope, who had won some victories out west. He had secured Island Number Ten of a, a series of, of fortifications in the Mississippi River. He had done a brilliant little amphibious campaign there that demonstrated some ability. They brought Pope to the east to command a new army, the Army of Virginia, that would be Hmm. cobbled together from units that had been in the Shenandoah Valley as well as some other units that that would reinforce from from Washington. And then the idea would be that they would absorb elements of McClellan's Army of the Potomac into their force uh, and and to uh, take the battle uh, towards Robert E. Lee. Uh, in that regard. However, Lee, understanding that McClellan had shot his bolt on the peninsula Mm -hmm. and is now on the move to join Pope, decides he will move overland to hit Pope before McClellan's units can fully join. Mm -hmm. 
And so he launches a brilliant campaign and sends his most trusted agent, Stonewall Jackson, to lead the way. Jackson takes up a formidable defensive position in an unfinished railroad cut on the old Manassas battlefield, and he awaits the approach of Pope's forces. When Pope makes contact, he fixates on trying to attack Jackson in his formidable defensive position mm. and completely loses sight of Longstreet and the rest of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia and mm. pays a huge price for that oversight. After the victory at Second Manassas, we now have a string of victories: the Peninsula Campaign, right. the Seven Days Confederate battles, victories, yeah, and, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. Second Manassas, all Confederate victories. This emboldens Robert E. Lee mm -hmm. to make a move, an invasion into Maryland. Mm -hmm. At the same time, out west, Braxton Bragg is planning the invasion of Kentucky, yeah. and this is the one and only time in the war that Jefferson Davis is actually getting his senior commanders in the Western Theater and the Eastern mm -hmm. Theater to act in concert. Mm -hmm. and, and, and think of it, Bragg into Kentucky, Lee into Maryland, both going into border states, mm -hmm. both with the goal of trying to win over those border states and their populations mm -hmm. to the Confederate cause. We're here to liberate you. Right, because Maryland was a slave state. Absolutely, yeah. and, and so now they're, and they're hoping to get recruits to help fill the Confederate ranks. Mm -hmm. They are going to be greatly disappointed on both <laughs> counts. Yeah. Uh, and so as Lee moves into Maryland, he comes to see that he does not have a warm reception there. Mm -hmm. People are not forthcoming. He doesn't get as much intelligence as he normally would if he were right. in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Jeb Stewart gets a bit complacent because after having just whipped the Army of the Potomac on the peninsula mm -hmm. and whipped Pope at 2nd Manassas, McClellan is back in Washington trying to pick up the pieces and cobble the Army of the Potomac back mm -hmm. together and absorb the remnants of Pope's army, plus 20,000 brand new green recruits who've never held a weapon before mm -hmm. and get them on the move in the span of five days to address Lee's invasion of Maryland. And they're, they're thinking that old, cautious George McClellan is going to move like molasses in January. Right. And McClellan surprises them and moves a lot faster with a great deal more alacrity than mm -hmm. they anticipated. Plus, when McClellan begins the pursuit of Lee and approaches Frederick, he gets an intelligence windfall of monumental proportions, Special Orders 191. Mm. This order shows Lee's plan to divide his army to address the threat to his supply lines. He needs to take the federal arsenal site at Harper's Ferry mm -hmm. in order to secure his supply lines back into Virginia. He thought that garrison would, would evacuate when his army moved north between it and Washington, but they didn't. Oh, wow. And so now he has to go back and address that. And of course, Lee was familiar with Harper's Ferry from the John Brown raid. From 1859, right. absolutely, as was Jeb Stewart, his yes. cavalryman, mm -hmm. right, that accompanied him there. And so with all of that said, McClellan knows Lee's army is divided, dangerously divided. He has the chance to defeat it piecemeal. The problem with it is when he gets this information, the, the, the information is already four days old, and he's not sure the exact concentration of these separate bodies of, of, McClellan, of uh, Lee's army. And so he moves cautiously, but he presses the attack, and he goes through the gaps of South Mountain where he encounters the Confederates in those passes and pushes them out mm -hmm. and then begins to make – try to make his move to try to go to the relief of Harper's Ferry, although he's too late in doing that. In the meantime, Robert E. Lee drops back through Keatesville and he's approaching the Potomac River and he's, he's beginning to think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of Maryland. Mm. But instead, he gets the word on the 15th of September that Stonewall Jackson has succeeded in taking Harper's Ferry and can now rejoin the main body within 24 hours. So Lee then decides... He's found some good high ground on a ridge line uh, just north of the town of Sharpsburg where he can tie his flanks into the Potomac River mm. and still have an egress route over Boatler's Ford to get out of there if he needed to. But he has a great defensive position, which he, he plays to the hilt, mm -hmm. utilizes the terrain to camouflage his units. He knows just where to concentrate his artillery to make his positions look much more formidable than perhaps mm. they actually were. Oh, wow. And uh, and so this gives 
This gives McClellan caution as he approaches from South Mountain, and he delays just long enough for Lee to concentrate his army and, and, and fight uh, McClellan to that one-day tactical stalemate in, at Antietam. And, at Antietam. And so was at, at Antietam, who, who was defending, who was attacking there? Yes, so Lee is in the defense, and of course McClellan is in the attack, and McClellan is going to try to hit him on both flanks. He's going to try the, the, uh, to hit the Confederate left flank first with Joseph Hooker on the morning of the 17th and then follow that with Burnside on the, on the opposite flank and see which one succeeds and then press up the middle once Lee has tried to address the threats to his flank. Mm. Um, the battle does not necessarily go as planned. Um, Lee takes advantage of his central position in the timely arrival of units from Harper's Ferry to strengthen the areas he needs to to counter the, the Union attack. And at the end of the day, you have 22,000-plus casualties between the two sides in the single bloodiest day of fighting still to this day yeah. in American military history. And then Lee slips across the Potomac on the 18th after a day of looking at each other, licking mm -hmm. their wounds, and realizing that neither side has the artillery and ordnance to continue the battle. Both decide to lay low that day, and then, and then Lee slips across the Potomac. What does McClellan do? Does he pursue? McClellan does not pursue, and, and he is trying – and again, after experiencing the massive carnage of Antietam and, and for the first time, photographs of this carnage reaching northern newspapers and Harper's Weekly and all of these other publications, I think the shock effect of that yeah. really tends to unnerve McClellan mm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. And McClellan is, of course, going to want to rebuild his supplies. He says yeah. his animals are starving. He needs fodder for them. Mm. He needs more ammunition. He needs to – give his troops time to rest and replenish. But this goes on and on for weeks and weeks, and right. Abraham Lincoln actually pays him a visit out there to try to prod him to mm -hmm. action. And this increasingly frustrates Lincoln mm -hmm. to the point where as, as McClellan finally gets going into Virginia in late October, uh, Lincoln is just looking to see if he pursues with any degree of alacrity. And when he sees that he doesn't, Ambrose Burnside will become the new commander in November of 1862. And, um, and then um, with Antietam now, um, and you call it a stalemate, right? Um, I think I've heard it referred to as a Union victory because and, and, the— And, and, and so there are di different levels of war. And so yeah. from the tactical end, it, it can definitely be considered a stalemate. It isn't like— uh, the Union took the field and, mm -hmm. and Lee chose to leave the field. But in leaving, from an operational and strategic standpoint, his attempt to invade the North mm -hmm. fails. Right. And of course, from a strategic standpoint, the Union claims victory. And, and it gives Lincoln the impetus to issue the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, something mm -hmm. he had been waiting to do. Mm -hmm. And this is this is representative of a change in philosophy and how to fight the war. Mm -hmm. Up until that time, uh, McClellan had advocated a conciliatory approach, trying to restore the Union, keeping slavery intact. And this is what mm -hmm. a lot of the Democrats were were mm -hmm. pushing for as well. But the Republican Party in the Lincoln administration had come to the idea, uh, as had commanders like John Pope that they brought from mm -hmm. the West – that the Southern population needed to feel the burden and the cost of their rebellion mm -hmm. against the United States and that a harder hand needed to take place. And the emancipation of the, of the slaves was viewed as a military necessity mm -hmm. to rob the South of their ability to, to continue their economic livelihood and free up their, their white male population to fight the war mm -hmm. and uh, to stave off foreign recognition of the Confederacy on moral grounds because most of the European countries had already abolished slavery. Right, yeah. And so what happens is a change in the aims of the war from limited aims aimed at restoring the Union, mm -hmm. keeping slavery, to one that is now on the basis of human freedom to emancipate the slave population, which is now going to require the complete military defeat of the South, right. the conquering of the South, and the eventual occupation Mm -hmm. of the South to fully realize the aims of the war. Right. And so um, thank you for, for this. This has been very, uh, very insightful. Uh, we went through a lot. I mean, from it's it's a 
little little more than, than a year of, of the war, uh, but we're trying to give a good overview of, of what took place. So thank you so much. Are, is there, are there any other up to this point? So we're really ending around November of 1862. I think in our next episode, we're going to pick it up uh, around the same time frame. And, uh, but is there anything else significant about this time frame that, that you wanted to mention? Uh, I, th- I think we've covered everything. All right, great. And then you know, before we close, I always ask if there's any HUA trivia. So do you have any HUA trivia about this time period? Absolutely. So um, allow me to talk about uh, Professor Thaddeus Lowe, science Ooh. professor who persuaded Abraham Lincoln to allow him to form the pioneering aerial reconnaissance organization in the U.S. Army known as the Military Aeronautics Corps with a fleet of eight hot air balloons that carried enough tether and telegraph cable to climb and report observations from altitudes as high as 5,000 feet. Oh, they, norm- wow. they normally operated at about 1,000. Wow. Um, but they served throughout the 1862 Peninsula Campaign and into the Chancellorsville Campaign. How did they get messages back? Semaphore? Or? Well, well, telegraph. They had the telegraph cable. Oh, they had a cable going yeah, up. Yep, oh, they would telegraph really Yep, down, okay. down the telegraph line. Wow. Uh, so it, it it was it was a great concept, mm-hmm. um, the, and a lot of the generals would go up in the balloon. Really? Although there were times where the tethers would cut loose and they'd go over <laughs> enemy lines. Oh no! And uh, General Porter did that one time, and General McClellan wrote in a letter to his wife that uh, you won't catch me going up in that infernal <laughs> balloon. But. Oh wow, that's a great piece of trivia. I think something. Um, uh, I knew that they used balloons, but I think that's um, a, a very unknown aspect of the Civil War. So. Absolutely. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Knight, for your discussion and insights today. My pleasure. About the Civil War in 1861 and 1862. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Army in the Civil War and learn more about Army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit us on our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, and tactics. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds, and until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.